to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake. Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. And their plan was to create a rehab that treated addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades of treating addiction, uh, including co-occurring mental health disorders like SMI. They also make sure that they approach uh, rehab and recovery and treatment with a good heart. Like, that's the number one thing. And everybody I know that have been there really uh, have praised them for having a good heart and being really kind to them while they were in treatment. They also make sure the detox is incredibly comfortable, which is critical when you're kicking heroin or Coke or alcohol or benzos, a comfortable detox is everything they also have amenities you wouldn't believe like the surfing the sound bath meditation the equine therapy they've got it all if you're fucked and you want to get well and you're willing to go to sunny southern california i totally suggest going to aloe this new episode of dopey is brought to you by our new sponsor Soberlink. And Soberlink is a remote recovery technology that empowers people in the fight against alcohol addiction. Studies show that monitoring and early recovery can help to improve outcomes. With Soberlink, you can stay connected remotely to family and friends, treatment professionals, recovery coaches, etc. The technology is accurate and reliable to help rebuild trust that may have been lost. There's no need to stress about having to convince someone that you are sober. What the Soberlink does is it gives gives the alcoholic in recovery a piece of apparatus that when they blow into it, you see that they are or are not intoxicated. It is trusted by 500 plus treatment centers. It is used by over 150,000 people. 
They have administered over 40 million tests to help addicts and alcoholics stay accountable. If you want to be accountable to yourself and accountable to your family, check out Soberlink at Soberlink.com. The following ad contains nicotine and is intended for listeners age 21 and older. And also, this new show is brought to you by Daddy's Vapor. Attention cigarette smokers, are you looking for an alternative to smoking tobacco? Ever consider switching to vapes? Many cigarette smokers have made the switch to vaping because of the flavors and nicotine strengths available, starting at zero nicotine, and their brand of choice is Twist E-Liquids. Twist is an American-owned company that makes its delicious e-liquids in Los Angeles, California. Twist has won several awards for creating mouth-watering flavors, such as its best-selling lemonade, sweet treats, and dessert flavors. But Twist also produces a line of sweet tobacco flavors. Try Twist e-liquids today and get 50% off your first purchase with code DOPEY50. That's D-O-P-E-Y 50. It is sold exclusively at daddysvapor.com. If you vape and you don't want half price, you're fucking crazy. Daddysvapor.com. Dopey's 50. Half price at daddysvapor.com. Use code Dopey50. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Evolution Accounting and Consulting. It is a full-service accounting firm that can help with your taxes, bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business need you have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. Perhaps most important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Use promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. I know a bunch of people who have been using Evolution Accounting, and they're super psyched to work with Eric. So check them out at evolution-accounting.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by SoberGrid, which is unlike any other addiction recovery solution. SoberGrid is a free app that connects you with other sober people. You are instantly connected to a global sober community in your neighborhood and around the world. You can build strong sober support networks and inspire others. SoberGrid now offers affordable 24-7 certified peer coaches to assist individuals in their recovery. Their peer coaches are trained and certified to help you get sober and stay sober. But the most interesting thing about SoberGrid to me is the ability to find the people nearby. They have a tracking app within the program where you can find somebody who's struggling. You can find somebody to help you. If you're struggling, you can connect with your people. It is free. It is at SoberGrid.com. Check them out right now. This episode is also brought to you by listeners like you through Dopey Patreon. I don't want to make a crazy thing of it. I love making the show. If you guys can contribute to Dopey Patreon, it gives me an opportunity to make more of the show. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. If you give 2 5 or $10, you get bonus content, 
bonus dopey. There's a ton of great stuff on there. Last week, we actually put out a free episode. Go to patreon.com slash dopey podcast and check it out. Also, there's a ton of merchandise available at dopeypodcast.com. I am officially out of beanies, so I still have some Oyve snapbacks, some dopey snapbacks, and we have new stickers coming in. And in other news, last week we had a sponsor called Brainwashed Coffee. Brainwashed Coffee is an amazing coffee company that gives half of their profits to addiction. I forgot to mention last week that we are running a brainwashed coffee contest, which is submit a dopey story. It can be an email or a voicemail. We will play your dopey stories. We will release them. They will get voted on, and the winner will receive free brainwashed coffee. That's brainwashedcoffee.com. Enough with the ads and contests and all this other shit. Here's the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave. And before I say anything else, I just want to be 100% with the audience. I have my very close friend Aurora on the phone. I have put her through hell. We have re-recorded this over and over and over again because I've made every mistake there is. Welcome back to the show, Aurora. Dave, it's great to be here. What up, Dopey Nation? Here's the question, Aurora. When we were on the phone the other day, you told me about what it is to be post five years in recovery and what all the old time AA fucks say about how there aren't any people between five and 10 years. And how have you found that to be true for yourself? Well, I just felt like I've been restless, irritable, discontent in every meeting I've been to since September. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I feel like I get it. I get it. You know, I've got resentments at all my regular meetings. I, I just feel like, fuck it, you know, fuck spiritual growth. But, <laughs> but it, isn't one of the great joys of going to meetings, like hating everybody at the meeting and judging them? Isn't that one of the great joys or no? Is that just me? Uh, that's well, I, I, I it was a great joy for me when you and I were together in meetings, but to be alone in the meeting um, and hate everyone is not a great joy. And I don't I, I just think it's I love having my own inner monologue, judging people. And I think Aurora, you know, you were working a pretty amazing program to the tune of like, how many meetings were you going to? You were going like six meetings a week or something, right? No, I mean, I, well, I think I would go to about five. Do you think you burned yourself out on it? Um, no, I mean, I think it's just the point I'm at in my recovery. But, you know, I think that it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what I do. And so I definitely, I don't want to drink or use. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to drift away. So I've been trying to go to a meeting every day uh, this week, go to some new meetings. Um, I'm just trying to be honest, too, about the way that I feel, I think, you know, I've heard it before. So I think other people have felt like this before. And so, you know, I'm just trying to be honest about it and not blow up my life or my recovery. Does it freak you out when the, when the quotes and the cliches mean something and you can use them and it's like, it sounds real? No, I like that. It freaks me out when I, when I, 
like the fact that you can't think yourself into better action, but you can act yourself into better thinking is on tap in my brain and it feels appropriate to use it. That fucks me up. It fucks you up. Oh, I I don't, I, I, it's weird though with the meetings thing that I'm uncomfortable. I mean, I'm not, I'm part of me is uncomfortable saying that they work. When you tell me that you don't want to go, I'm kind of like, I hear you, but you know that you... It's like we're so much better when we're full of the fucking bullshit than we're not full of the bullshit, basically. I mean, my sponsor said to me, it doesn't matter if you like AA, you still have to go to meetings. <laughs> so I've been going to... You know, I've gone to a meeting every day for the last five days. I already feel a lot better, you know? I feel a lot better. I, um, I went to a, a, a new meeting on Sunday. I did some service to check out, like... Um, for the online directory, if a meeting is actually an AA meeting. And it was this group of stoner dudes, you know, skateboarders, and they were dropping the fucking recovery. Like, they were, it was incredible. It was a great meeting. And then I've been trying to seek out, like, a lot of literature meetings, big book meetings, 12 and 12 meetings, and just, you know, try to remain honest, open, and willing, right? That's what it takes. So. That sounds good. It sounds like you've been reading the literature. It sounds like you're, you've been drinking the Kool-Aid, fucking sipping your LaCroix, your AA LaCroix. Um, now, as a child of hardcore addiction and alcoholism, how, how much does, like, having parents that were out and, like, having a childhood that definitely, like, suffered at the hands of addiction and alcoholism play into your brain around your own recovery? Do you think about it? Do you think about your family, your mom and your dad when you're in these meetings and you hear these stories? Like, you have such a nice, like, very genteel, middle-class existence, fucking eating avocado toast, fucking making coffee in the fucking glass shit, whatever you make coffee in. What is that shit you make your coffee in? I make a, I make cold brew. In your cold brew kit. You're living it up over there, but you came up from the school of hard knocks. Do you, do you consider like that? I mean, I think like, uh, you know, they had this um, segment on PBS recently in December about like childhood trauma. And there's this quiz called the ACEs quiz that you take. It's 10 questions. Um, to see like your trauma and I took it and I don't even know really I don't even know how to answer some of the questions like where I score like I definitely score five (laughs) questions maybe eight out of ten I don't even know like some of them how to answer like because either I can't remember or I'm disassociated or it was like you know what counts as abuse like you know I I remember a few incidents of 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 you know, physical abuse between my dad, and my mom, or my grandpa, and my mom. Is that is that often, or is that not? Like, is that a trauma or not? I don't know. Um, so, I, you know, I think I've been thinking about it a little bit in regards to trauma, and like, it is a constant struggle with my dad, who can be quite abusive. You know, he's like untreated alcoholic. He's like emotionally has the bandwidth of a small child. And, um, he's really erratic. And so he can be super abusive. And I have to remind myself, like, I don't need to take abuse. And sometimes I, you know, sometimes I, I do find it, you know, I think it's probably an Al-Anon issue. Sometimes I do find it hard 
to empathize sometimes with addicts um, because, I don't know, part of me is like, oh, you think you got it bad or oh, boo-hoo, you know, just because of what I've seen and what I've gone through. And for anyone that doesn't know, Aurora was basically raised by her grandparents because her parents were too fucked up to do it, basically. And, and, and of course, also Aurora's mother wound up, you know, very sick on drugs and killing herself um, with AIDS, right? I mean, it's a terrible deal. Um, you know, it's hard to pluck comedy out of trauma. But Aurora has managed to... Uh, I mean, your grandparents gave you a beautiful life. And, um, yeah. and, and you obviously have a very beautiful life now with your high-end cold brew kits and Peloton and fucking double masking and everything else you have going on. But it's like, yeah. I, I think it's important because there's a lot of people in the dopey nation who do come from really traumatic situations or are, you know, unfortunately creating traumatic situations <laughs> for their children. And, um, I think that you're a great example of somebody that can like see it, get through it and do something to change. I think that's really amazing. I mean, I was thinking too, when I was listening to, um, Mike, who, you know, is gonna, is gonna speak this episode. Like, you know, when I was a little kid, uh, my grandma would drive my mom and I to the methadone clinic and they would fight the entire fucking way. Sometimes I would have to stay in the car with my grandma. Sometimes I would go in with my mom and I would sit with the receptionist at the methadone clinic and like type on her typewriter you know, while my mom was getting methadone. And, you know, it's just fucking crazy for a kid to be going through that. And also, like, the hatred between my mother and my grandmother was very fucking toxic and traumatic for a little kid, you know? Right. Um, The resentment and stuff. And, like, I mean, I hear about that at meetings. There's a lady at one of my meetings who uh, lost her son to her mother. You know what I mean? And, like... And, and for years, she would just complain about, like, her mother. And then she got really sober. And now she's starting to, like, live with them and live with her place in the kid's life and her place in the mother's life. And you live with it long enough, and, and she'll probably get the kid back because she's not so t- bent out of shape about it. She's dealing with the resentment, which is amazing. Yeah. Now, before we get to Mike Mart, I want to talk a little bit more about dealing with resentment from our sponsor, our incredible sponsor. Do you like that, Aurora? You're a professional. That's a pretty good segue, right? That was a good segue. So BetterHelp.com is uh, an incredible way for people to get professional help from licensed therapists and counselors online. They have over 10,000 professionals to choose from who are licensed, trained, and highly experienced. You connect in a safe and private online environment. They can help you with trauma like you have. They can help you with family issues like you have. They can help you with uh, food issues, sleep issues, you name it, better help.com can help you because facing obstacles alone can be daunting. Wouldn't you say Aurora, isn't it tough to face obstacles alone? You can't, can't do it alone. Receiving support and guidance from professional counselors has been shown to make huge positive changes to help you overcome personal challenges. When you sign up, we'll match you with an experienced counselor 
who fits your objectives, preferences, and the type of issues you're dealing with. Different counselors have different approaches and areas of expertise, so they will work with you to find the right person who can achieve the best results. Basically, you talk to somebody, you feel better. It's betterhelp.com, betterhelp.com. As a listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. Over a million people have taken charge of their mental health. And again, that's betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. Um, so now we're going to play this amazing interview from uh, Mike Mart. Mike is an amazing guy. He's a punk rock legend. He's a podcasting legend, but mostly he's a great friend of the show. Aurora, are you excited to hear Mike Mart on Dopey? I am pumped to hear Mike. Well, here you go. Mike Mart. I do all the Bob Forrest guys. Oh, yeah. You did Chuck, too. Have you done Bob, too? I was on Chuck's episode. No, I haven't been on Bob's episode. All right. Well, here's Mike Mart. It's been... An age and a half where I've, I've, it's been the cool, the coolest thing. I think the coolest thing about Dopey, besides from the incredible accolades and worldwide fans and attention everywhere, is actually making friends with people. And I met this guy years ago on the phone. And over the years, we've actually become friends. And it's Mike Mart, rock star, guitarist, punk rock legend, don't die, producer, editor, fucking guy, and he's my friend Mike. How are you? Hey, Dave. Dave M., what's up, man? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. That is so true, man. It's it's weird. Like, I, you know, I look forward to when we come to New York and go to Cats, and, you know, you probably won't even be working there by then. You'll probably have, like, a big studio or something, you know? Yeah, you'll come down, to the, come down to the dopey offices. Yeah, like, it'll be, like, Trump Tower or something, you know? <laughs> At least, a, at least a room where there's a big dopey sign and somebody picks up the phone and they say, hello, dopey, right? You should have somebody Photoshop dopey over Trump Tower, the Trump letters on Trump, except gold dopey letters. Well, if, if anybody out there, because there's a lot of people who are incredibly gifted artists in the dopey nation, if anybody wants to take a shot. It could happen, man. It dude, happen. it'll happen. Golden dopey tower in the place of Trump Towers. That is your assignment. Let me just say, the dopey nation is so awesome. I fucking love it, man. It's- I do, too. Uh, the dopey nation blows my mind, but they also scare me. It reminds me of like <laughs> of like having Having like an, a terrarium in your house full of spiders that one day are going to get out and kill you. <laughs> Dude, we're all together, man. We're all together intermingling, like you know, just like all these dope addicts, man, that are actually fucking sober, man, and and, and doing this thing without telling people that you know, giving people rules and giving people fucking ultimatums and all this other bullshit that goes on in AA. It boggles my mind. It also just makes me feel good, and it may, they make each other feel good. It's like it's doing what we had wanted it to do, which was to keep. Each other company and they do it for themselves you know dopey's a small part of the dopey nation it's 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 really cool and and don't die don't die is a huge part of the dopey nation they're always talking about you guys in there and my my favorite thing about don't die though is uh and this is because i'm a self-centered narcissist addict whatever no i work with one by the way my favorite thing i remember you guys had started and chris calls me and he goes yo 
Bob Forrest did did a podcast and he said he owes it all to us. And uh, and he sent me the clip where Bob Bob is like, oh, there's this podcast called Dopey, and basically I stole their idea. And I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. But it was it's great, you know. Um, yeah, that that was my first exposure, like a year. After I guess a year after you guys had started, you had a bunch of episodes, and that was my first exposure to Dopey. And I was just like, "Oh my god, this is so great!" Well, I appreciate that, and uh, and and just for the Dopey Nation to know that whenever there's a serious technical problem, and I'm worried that everything is lost, I call Mike because Mike yeah. is the guru. And uh, kind of a tech, you- I'm kind of a tech nerd now. You know, I used to not even be able to plug my guitar in without somebody helping me. You know. But I was really fucked up, so. Very many times. I Just recently, I had a buzz in my system, and somehow, stupidly, I called Mike to, so he could tell me how to fix it. And just being on the phone with him fixed it. That's how great your power is. <laughs> That's always a thing called a ground loop, Dave. <laughs> uh, what a yeah. terrible what a terrible thing technology is. Um, but also, we have something called Dopey Reddit. And uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago... Somebody posted, I want to hear Mike Mart's dopey stories. That dude's crazy. And I was like, ah, oh, Mike Mart, yes, as, <laughs> as a dopey guest. And then the other day I was looking, you guys posted Don't Die Feed, and someone's like, I want to hear Mike Mart's stories. And I was like, yes, so do you know, I. You know, it's funny, man, because, like, when you get sober, I've been sober for 28 years, and um, those stories somehow get buried. You know what I mean? They get buried in some sort of psychological fucking blanket that you know wraps you and keeps you warm and keeps you sober so i don't really tell them that often but i do have a bunch and i'll do my best did you start did you start by playing music or did you start by getting high which came first yeah let's talk about where i grew up i grew up at the beach man i grew up like you you're at the beach right i'm near the bay beach i'm like three miles away from the bay beach i'm probably like 11 miles away from the ocean beach growing up at the beach um just part of the whole story you know i mean it's where i learned how to play guitar it's where i surfed i surfed on acid surfing on acid is is kind of incredible by the way do you think is that a thing is that a thing that surfers do are they always surfers surfers do it all the time man yeah drop acid and go surfing man but you can get scary on really big days and that's what we used to do we used to get drunk and drop acid and go out on the biggest days we could possibly go out on. It's got to be terrifying. It's got to be terrifying. Yeah, it's fun, man. Did um, you pick up? Did you pick up the guitar first, or did you pick up using first? I picked Thanks. up the guitar first. My my brother taught me how to play guitar, right? So I played uh, bass for him in his blues band, and we played in front of this surf shop, and it's kind of this legendary surf shop, Oli Surfboards, you know. And so, but then in about. When I was 10 or 11, I started taking, uh, drinking and smoking weed and taking drugs. I had my first bad acid trip when I was 11 years old. Oh, my God. When was your first good acid trip? My, the first bad acid trip I had, I thought I, I thought I had died. You know what I mean? I, I had taken a bunch of this shit, and I guess it was like mescaline mixed with this and that and blah, because we were kind of, it was like early. It was 68, 69, somewhere around there. And uh, everybody was just taking everything. It was like it was like in those movies where you see you go to the parties, the adult parties, and they had bowls of fucking pills. Right. I actually like had. That. Yeah, they, there were some parties in my neighborhood that were like that. These crazy fucking bikers that I hung out with. But um, 
I didn't know what to do, man. I thought, you know, I was leaving my body. You know, that, and that acid trip story that Chris was telling, too. You don't really know where you're at, you know, when you're too fucking high. And I was so young. I laid down on my bed, and my sister was kind of trying to comfort me, man. And I went, I left my body, and I went up to the corner of the room, and I could see my body down, you know, like when Chris was looking back and back at himself. Mm-hmm. Same thing, man. It was really weird. That was my first bad acid trip when I was 11. And I didn't touch anything for a year. Dude, I went back to school. I was not the same person. I thought I'd gone crazy. Well, you had, you know, you, you just, know? maybe, maybe you got sane a little bit again, but we, we go crazy when we get, when we get that far out on, on psychedelics, it, it changes our brains. That's for sure. I was never the same after I did it the first time, after I had a really intense trip. The thing that I'm really interested about, it, it's starting to interest me more and more, like the idea, you know, you hear stories about out-of-body experiences, right? Like, uh, like your acid thing or Chris's acid thing, or you're in the dentist and you see yourself in the chair, or you think you're going to die and you see yourself. It's like that kind of, I've never been a big like soul person or afterlife person or anything like that. But these kinds of stories, it's interesting. You know, the idea of being able to see yourself like actually, right? Yeah, I wonder what happens. I wonder what actually happens. I wonder if it's all psychological or if it's physical. It's, it's yeah. fascinating. It's comforting in a weird way, though, right? <laughs> could be all fucking real. It could be. Did you, you know, see the, the, acid, you... the acid just gets us there, you know what I mean, to experience the real thing. Was at, when you took acid, were you like, this is it? Were you like, I've discovered where I want to be? Oh, I was or... so into acid in high school. I used to take, I, I did, I um, used to deal it, you know, in high school because of course I recovered after, you know, my, my bad acid trip at 11 and I was back on, you know, whatever I could get. And um, uh, I did an experiment, like a social experiment. I thought I was doing a social experiment, you know, and I took acid for two weeks straight and went to school. Oh my god! And by the end, of, by the end of uh, two weeks, I was taking like two hits of acid, and, and um, I had this really cool counselor who knew something was going on, and he said, "Look, just uh, come and sit in my office, man, and we'll talk." You know, so he, um, he, I would go sit in his office on acid and talk to this counselor that was like extra cool. You know, I, I don't know. He probably knew. What, what did he do? Did he, he go, you know, have you ever heard, uh, and he's like, he, he's like, have you ever heard no. uh, acts as bold as love? No, you, know what, he, you know what he did? He said, you know what? You are a perfect candidate for this test. <laughs> and he had me take this test because I think, I don't know if he thought I was nuts or if he, if he thought I was special or what, but I took this big, long, I it took a whole day and I took the psychological test for him. And, uh, one day I asked him, I said, what did that test you know, what did it, what did it come back as? And he goes, Oh, you are, you are, um, prime candidate for, um, the army. (laughs) (laughs) He was like like, fucking with me. I think he was fucking with me. Right. (laughs) Because you're prime candidate. I think you should join the coast guard or the army. And I said, what? Get the fuck. (laughs) Meanwhile, meanwhile, you get out of the office. You're like selling doses to your friends. Yeah, no, I'm not going to the army. See you later. It's about, you know, that was when we cut, uh, when we cut from him. And uh, at that time, were you realizing that you were a decent guitar player? Like what, what was building up more your, your progeny as drug addict or as guitar player? You know, man, I was just really into guitar and um, then, to, you know, you can't, you can't like at the time, 
I knew that I had to move to Hollywood, you know, to, in order to, to get in a band. So, um, I just moved to LA and started getting in bands because I wanted to play. And where I, were you I, at? You know, I had, you progr- I had progressed enough where, you know, going through all the Iggy Pop albums, going through all the Dolls albums, going through all the Ramones songs, playing in cover bands, blah, 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 down at the beach parties, blah, blah. You know, and I thought, this is, this is stupid. I'm going to move to L.A., you know, and just get in a band. So that's what I did. And I got in this band, uh, Texan Horsehead's. Now, before that, you're listening to all of these, you know, the seminal kind of punk rock world and, and music in general was so tied to drug use and counterculture was so tied to drug use. And every story about Iggy Pop was related to how fucked he might have been at this time or that time. Did that influence you? Like, did that world was that part of your story like like no i mean i mean i was not the musician you are i was like a fucking shit musician and it was so influential to me the idea of like taking drugs and playing music like it was like i wanted to be like that was that part of your identity uh it was all i thought about really you know i mean you have to be pretty much obsessed with um with a plane you know like i played i i played and practiced 8 hours a day i'd get high and i and i'd practice and play guitar 8 to 10 hours a day. You know, I did nothing else. I did nothing else except that. So, and and I never really got good. I never really, in my eyes, I never really got that good. I just was total, you know, fucking around, man. Right. But, you have but I was learning, but I was learning songs and, and I call it, I call it having like James Williamson combination, um, Jimmy page kind of damage. You know what I mean? Because those guys don't play fucking normal. Like you listen to James Williamson and you go like, what? what the fuck is he doing? It sounds like a mistake. And then he plays the same mistake again. And you're like, wait you're a minute. Like, oh. Ah, I get it. He's not playing a mistake. He's playing. It's not a mistake if you play it twice. Like there's guys, there were guys that, that were playing like Peter Frampton. You know what I mean? This sort of really melodic sort of guitarish shit. And I wasn't, I wasn't into that. I wasn't, you know. You wanted the bombastic thing. Yeah. Um, as you're, uh, as you're getting ready to go and you're playing along with Jimmy Page or James Williamson or, or Wayne Kramer or any of these guys, what was the drug? I mean, the acid can't be sustained. Did it go to alcohol? Did it, what did it go to? Well, at that time I just, uh, I found heroin, you know, I found you just heroin. Went right, you just found it right yeah. away. Yeah, I was, I was probably only twenty when I started shooting heroin. How did you, how did you stumble onto it? Uh, I had a, a girlfriend that um, was um, part of the Germs crowd. You know the band, the Germs. Yes. And uh, when I met her, uh, she had blue hair. Her name was Kathy, and I said, "Your name's Kathy." And she goes, "Yeah." I go, "What's your last name?" She goes, "Kathy." And I said, "So your name's Kathy, Kathy?" She goes, "Yeah." And she was the one that showed me how to, you know, to shoot, to shoot up, man. Before that, what, what, what were you like? Were you fucking with drugs or no? Like, were you like, I mean, you did acid all through high school. Yeah, it was a lot. Of, it was a lot of cocaine and a lot of um, speed and a lot of just, you know, uh, the thing that uh, the thing that was really popular was black beauties and downers. You know, if you took the, uh, quaaludes and, and black beauties were speed. So you had this kind of pill jargon going on, you know, in the uh, in from the seventies to the eighties. But then when the eighties hit, heroin and punk rock kind of became the the thing, you know. Why was the, why like 
tell us about the scene. Like, explain, like, the germ scene. Explain, like, the early 80s in L.A. Explain how heroin and punk rock got joined at the hip. Because I think that's very interesting stuff. You know, I only knew L.A., right? Like, I knew when the Ramones came to town and when Iggy came to town and when a band from out of town, like Blondie or something, came to town. I had to pay to go see them. They were the only bands I ever paid to go see. The club scene in Los Angeles was, you know, you could get in if you were friends with everybody. So I only knew really the L.A. scene, but, um, like, Darby Crash was way into was way into heroin, you know? And it was cool. And, and I think that was my probably my influence, you know? On, there, was, there were some guys that avoided it, but I didn't. You know, it doesn't need to be explained because like every scene had weird dope around the edges and, and punk rock certainly did. You know, I mean, you didn't the Ramones didn't. I mean, I guess Dee Dee was on on heroin and, and the Sex Pistols, you know, Sid Vicious is on heroin. And the L.A. scene, though, was seemed to be and the dolls you had Johnny Thunders was, you know, deep on heroin. Yeah, it was everywhere. Uh, but it was like, you're right. Some people just avoided it and other people didn't. And you jumped in. And and when Tex and the Horseheads happened, were you all the way in already? Yes, I was all the way in. Yes. When we went out on tour, it was about a two weeks. You know, you, you were you were drunk. You were on pills that you took out on the road. For This was for the first few tours. And uh, you would detox around Texas, you know. You would start feeling pretty good around Texas or so, you know. And then uh, and the rest of the tour was okay. You just drank a lot, you know. That is like the benefits of touring. But when you did the tour, how often did you find dope on the tour? Well, here's the thing is, is I learned on my second tour, I learned that you could go to these methadone clinics, you know, and hang out with the junkies and find out where everybody scored. So I would hit the methadone clinics in the morning, and um, talk it up with some junkies, some local junkies, and we would get high. I mean, you go, you, you had to look in the phone book, fucking local methadone clinic, man. The, the funniest thing about that to me is like how, because I used to have to do a job. I was, uh, I worked on a TV show, and I'd have to go around to scout locations. And I was on heroin, and I would go to these places, and and I had taken methadone here and there, but it didn't occur to me to do that. At first. So you're going to like La Jolla, you're going to San Diego, you're going to uh, East Lansing, Michigan, or I went to these places to do these shows and I didn't know what to do. I was like, no, I'm just going to get sick. And I would detox in every town just like you. And then it hit me, just ask where the methadone is. And then it's like every town is like a crazy dope spot. So that's an old trick now. Yeah. I didn't know you worked. I didn't know. Were you like swing gang or something for the movie? You were you were a location no, scout. I worked I worked for a real shitty little TV company uh, that that made college cable television for colleges, and they would send me and and then it turned into like a music music show that I would make for that company. But they would send me out ahead of the crew to get a location to get kids to be on their shows, that kind of stuff. And then it was like I would go out like I'd have to go to Jamaica to do something and I and I'd have to bring heroin and I'd run out or like I, I just went it was like I was traveling a bunch when I was working for a couple years before my habit really hit. You know what I mean? And then after my habit hit I barely worked. Uh, when was your habit at its worst? Oh my God, man. Uh, probably in the nineties. I remember that we, you and I were talking the other night, we were talking about something and you started talking about 
that you would tour wearing cowboy boots, not because you love the style, but because of all the stuff you could uh, put in the boots. Uh, yeah, I, had, I, I did. I had some. I had. Uh, I wore cowboy boots because you could. I soon found out that you could. You could put your rig and your spoon and every you know a small little spoon or a cap or whatever with a little wire on it. And I mean, you can hide it in your boot, and cops would never really stick their hands inside your boots. You know, they would pat you down on the outside, and if you wore it on the back by the heel in a paper bag wrapped up, and the paper bag was old enough, I had a nice old one that didn't make crinkling noises, and I stuck it in my sock way back by the heel, and they would pat the sides, and I could always uh, hide my rigs like that. Was the cowboy... And, you know, and, and basically, and basically, cowboy boots were great for, like, smuggling, you know, bottles of booze into clubs and everything, you know? You could, put a, you could put a flask in it. And also, the fact that your band was called Tex and the Horseheads meant that, like, having cowboy boots is part of being, like, Tex or whatever, right? <laughs> or no, is that my reaching? I think, I think Jeffrey Lee Pierce was uh, was big on cowboy boots, and um, but yeah, I liked it, it because it, it provided a good place. Because before that, I was wearing, you know, like, work boots that needed duct tape on the toes and unlaced and punk rock shoes you know basically and when you're touring how long do the tours go oh uh, the tours but you know they last about a month maybe two months sometimes if you're really good you know if you're doing well i remember black flag used to tour for i mean constantly they had black you know they had this van black flag had this van where they had built these little layers uh, like up at the top there were two bunks two places where people could slide in almost like morgue drawers and then the equipment would go underneath so it was actually three levels slide in you know and they would just tour constantly like that it was crazy when you guys toured how long would you stay on the road like would you get would you get comfortable off of dope like or would would you be uncomfortable the whole time you know you're so resilient it seems like back you know in your in your early days you can you can detox and go back on and detox and go back on a million times because you're not sick of it yet you know, it's only till later, man, after 20 years of fucking using, you're thinking, God damn, man, this really sucks, you know? You know? And you're, drink, you're drinking through all the details. Yeah, just anyway. drinking through the whole thing, you know? So it doesn't really, it's a train wreck. At what point do you meet Bob? I met Bob when he did the Sunday Club. He had this club that was like uh, was like in Hollywood that had these these daytime shows on Sundays, right? And everybody would get together and play baseball across the street, and it was like a bunch of fucking you know it looked like a crazy bunch of you know girls playing in high heels and you know guys running around in leathers and and by then you know it was kind of on as far as the dope, you know I was shooting dope and drinking whiskey like I had a date with the firing squad or something. You know, it didn't really matter how fucked up you were back then because somehow you could always get away with it. Like nowadays, yeah. it seems like so like, like they can't really, you can't get away with it nowadays. I think you were a kid. You know what I mean? I think it's different when you're a kid. I think kids, kids that live through it can get away with it if nobody's watching. I think in those days, parents weren't watching the same way. They weren't neglectful parents necessarily, but they weren't fucking watching. And, and, like, there was a scene, you know what I mean? And kids could kind of do what they did and turn up at their friend's house or turn up at some 
squat or whatever and no, wake but up. At the, and no, but, but the, at the time, it seemed like you had to, you know, you did not have to hide anything. You know, you didn't have to hide it at all. It could be out in the open. Now it's almost like hidden, you know. it's It seems like everybody's trying to hide this shit, you know. And maybe that's the key to why people are dying or something is because they're trying to go under the radar. Whereas back in the 80s, and then it was just like you could be fucked up. It was like... Do you remember the first time Kathy Kathy shot you up? Uh, you know, it's it's very anticlimactic. You know, we mean we got some dope, and she said, "Hey, let me sh- let me show you how to do this, right?" So I said, "Sure." And I held out my arm, and she shot me up. You know, and uh, I said that was great. You know, it was amazing, and 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 then she showed me and the next couple of times. I learned how to do it myself, and. Uh, it's just kind of a no fear type of thing, you know, but it wasn't in an alley. It wasn't in, you know, a car. It wasn't in, it was just in my house, you know, it was like very, very normal sort of like, Oh yeah, let's do it that way. All right, cool. Yeah. It wasn't next to a dumpster while it rained no, in an alley. No, I don't have a great, really, a really great story. It wasn't tan, tan gay. Hey, what was that story you guys were telling about the tan gay or something? Tan? No, I think that was a story where Chris passed out in a tanning bed and pissed himself or something. He had he had crazy fucking stories. Um, he was good, man. He was really good. And Chris didn't know the difference between Prince and Queen. Literally, like if when Prince died, he thought it was Queen, the band. You know, so really? like that, so like you couldn't be more opposite than Chris than if you tried, and yet still, you know, it's oblivion seeking at the end of the day, right? It's like you might have been caught up with the history of like who used what or or the art, you know, beatniks or this or that or whatever. Chris didn't know anything about anything. He didn't know anything about anything. He just loved getting fucked up. Yeah. You know, yeah. how, how like, I liked all that story stuff. I liked hearing about William Burroughs or like Bob Dylan on heroin or, or Iggy Pop or whoever. How much was the, the legend of, of like rock and roll junkies or art junkies in your mind? Like when you're on tour, were you like, I'm living it up or, or was it not a thing? It was not a thing. <laughs> I, so can, you were, I guess. You, yeah. You were, you were more like Chris in that. You just like to get fucked up, play rock and roll and keep moving. You know, that stuff sort of fell in my lap. The reading of William Burroughs, uh, that Hunter Thompson was very big, you know, in our little world. Um, just love the way he was crazy as all fuck, you know? Guns. And, and Bob loved all that shit. We all had that connection, yeah. William Burroughs was kind of strange. It was like, it was more of a New York thing, I think. But we, you know, you definitely uh, read a lot of his books, yeah. I didn't like any of the Burroughs books except Junkie. Did you ever try, did you ever try and read Tarantula? That Bob Dylan book, Tarantula, where he cut up all the shit? And f- yes, yes. Fucking. I can't Did, did you do it? Could you I couldn't it? read it. I, I, I read little read bits. I can, but John Lennon had a book like that too. The John Lennon book. You remember the? I forgot even what it's yeah. called. But it, but it was a total mess like that. <laughs> I still have my copy of Tarantula. I don't have literally anything I owned when I was young. I have nothing. Nothing. It's all gone. Really? Uh, everything is gone. I have nothing. It's weird. Like anything I owned, I either just left or sold or was destroyed, burned. Whatever. You don't have just, like a spelling bee trophy or anything like that. No, I have my I have my senior yearbook, my high school senior yearbook, but that's it. Um, what was 
when you when you when did you start playing with Bob? Were you guys both using when when you joined Thelonious Monster or no? Yeah, we were both using, of course. Yeah, it was. See, so I was in Texan the Horseheads, and Texan the Horseheads had recorded like three albums. Um, the last album was called Tots Zins, which is a, it was recorded in Dutch. In uh, in I'm sorry, in Holland, and um, I thought he spoke the, Dutch when he recorded. The title it. the title was called Todd Zins, which means bye bye. And uh, we kind of broke up, you know. We sort of were just nah, we weren't weren't interested anymore. And then Bob, I met Bob, and we had a lot of the same interests. You know, I'm not the guy like Bob is the talking guy. He's always been, and I've always hooked myself up with the talking. You know, people that know how to put those words together, man. Because, like, guitar players are basically just want to play guitar. You know, you don't see, ever see Jimmy Page on a microphone. No, you? and you and rarely do you see Keith. I guess in uh, Expensive Winos, Keith's singing a bunch. Although, you know who's really funny is, the, is, the, is Captain Sensible from The Damned. He's funny on a microphone. So what was it like when you got back to, to with when you got with Bob in the first place? So so I joined Thelonious Monster because Bob Bob was experimenting. They had this band that was kind of like a bunch of nerds, you know, with glasses. Not your typical rock guys, you know, like me. I'm kind of a sloppy, drunken rock guy, you know. And so Bob was throwing all this crap in the mix, you know, with like uh, with with Rob Graves, who was wonderful, and with me, who's you know, ever changing, sort of flowing thing with the Lonious Monster. It was kind of crazy, you know. Some people would come in, some people would come out. You never knew who was going to show up. With the, you know, if there was going to be three guitar players, five guitar players, one guitar player, or no guitar players. One time we did this show at this place called Bogarts, and um, they said, "Well, you know, where's your guitar?" And I said, "Well, it's in Hawk," you know. So they got my stuff out of Hawk, right? And uh, we sound checked. And in between sound check and the show, I took my stuff off of the stage and went to the pawn shop and I pawned it again and I got really high and I showed up for the gig really high with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> they were, they were, you know, they were a little mad. They were a little mad about that. You know, did you play? I played. Yeah. Cause there was two other guitar players. It doesn't matter if I, you know, look at it. I'm just going to strum the acoustic. It's my new sound. No big deal. Yeah. A little, that's, it's like country rock or something. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 that's fun. Deal with how it. Many, I needed to get high. How many people in, in, in Thelonious were, were getting high on dope, or was it just you and Bob? Me and Bob used together. That was it. And Chris Hansen never used. Uh, Pete Weiss used separately, but sometimes together, but not with us, really. And then Dix was thrown in with me and Bob, because Dix never says a word. So he would just all of a sudden you would be you'd have some dope and you'd be doing it and you'd look over and there's sticks. You had no idea how he got there. You know, he's just included. Right. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever met? You never met Dix, did you? I never met anybody. The most the most amazing, amazing, amazing guitar player in the world. Right. And he hardly says two words. I mean, I, I did an entire tour with Dix Denny one time where I think maybe he said five words and they were. Yeah. No, and they were. I don't know. Do you feel like you know him well or no? Yeah, I feel like I know him really well. I took I took Dick Stinney fishing on acid one time on tour. We stopped at this hotel in uh, in uh, in uh, Texas, and we had a bunch of acid. I don't know where this fucking acid always comes from. It's so so I we took acid, me and Dicks, and I had this. I had brought this little toy fishing rod. 
you know, stuck it in somewhere. It was like a, a collapsible one. I said, Dix, let's go, let's go fishing. There's a ditch over here. Let's go fishing. So I took them, you know, we're frying on acid. There's refrigerators and shopping carts and trash all in this thing. And I'm fishing in this thing and I catch a catfish. <laughs> there was a time, there was a time. Here's another acid story. There was a time when they didn't have any money. This We played at this club in Nebraska, and they said, look, we don't have any money, but we have these sheets of acid. We can pay you in sheets of acid. And I said, that's, that's awesome. That's fucking great. Let's do that. And they're going, where? I go, where is it? And they go, it's out in the middle of a cornfield. <laughs> so we drive out in the middle of a cornfield with about 30 punk rockers. There's a barn out there. It has electricity. No doors on the on the barn, and we play this gig in the middle of a cornfield in Nebraska for two sheets of acid, two full sheets of acid. So they gave the band the two sheets. Did you take them all, or did you sell them? No, we just put them. We took them with us and took them out on the road whenever we felt like taking acid. It's the magic of it. It's the acid has a magical quality. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. Like I mean, it's inexpensive, but it's like so cosmic, and it's so. It, some little bit does so much and it just turns up, but it doesn't turn up after your total junkie piece of shit though. I never did acid again after I was, you know, in and out, in and out, in and out on dope. Were you, were you tripping acid after you became super addicted to heroin? Just, just whenever it came, came by. But I mean, what is the deal? Do people do acid nowadays? Yes, they do. Yes. They is do. it the same as, is it? Well, well, listen, I haven't done acid in a long time, but my, my friend who died, my friend Todd, who died right before Chris, he was really heavy into fish, and he was heavy into all these jam bands and whatever. And, and he was, you know, he'd be in his 40s, and he would go to see fish and be, be dosing. You know, he'd be dosing, and then he would take some ecstasy, and then he would take more acid, and then he would, like, smoke coke, and then he would find dope, and, you know, he would take acid. I mean, so I know that in the fish scene, there's a ton of acid. So yeah. I know that there's still acid there. I don't know other than that. Dopey Nation, are, are, are the kids taking acid? Let us know. Send us an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Because really, really, really think about it, Dave. Like, like, like heroin for me was like meat and potatoes. I just needed it every fucking day. You know what I mean? Like, I needed it in the morning, and I needed some at night. You know what I mean? That's the way it was. That's the way it was for 18 years, right? It was some meat and potatoes. It was how I got, you know, through my day. All the other shit was on top of the meat and potatoes, right? It was like if I could get some speed, if I could get some Coke, it was great. If I could smoke some crack, if I could take some acid, right? The heroin, the heroin for me was just to... I mean, obviously, after a little bit, it was just so you didn't get sick, you know, but it was also just I wanted to feel that I wanted to feel it made me feel safe. It made me feel calm. It made me feel like I was okay. It made me feel exactly the way I wanted to. And then it became like I I would feel nauseous if I didn't have it. Like I I was, you know, it, it was a bad deal. Obviously, a heroin addict. But right when you first when you first start taking it, it is kind of like the weekend warrior thing where you're like taking it, taking it, taking it. You're not strung out yet, you know. Every think everybody goes through that. You think you can just escape this whole uh, addiction thing, and you you know you take it for a couple of days, and then you oh man, I better back off. You know, you do that for maybe you can do that for years, right? But I think when I finally decided that you know what I'm going to give up fucking drinking was my third drunk driving, right? And I figured out that if you shot heroin every day, you didn't have to drink. So I shot hair. I was just a conscious decision. You know, after my third drunk driving, they were going to send me to prison. I was like, 
fuck this. I'm going to shoot heroin every day. And I, that's exactly what I started doing. Most people do the opposite and they say, I can't be shooting heroin every day. So I'm just going to drink every day. You did the, the opposite, which I like. I, I did it. I did it because I had a new job and I had some money and I was like, I can afford it. And I, I just thought I could afford it. I don't know how I thought I could afford it, but I just thought I could. And I remember making the decision though. And the decision was, I'm not getting off of this because I don't want to get sick. I'm going to figure out how to keep putting money into it, you know, which is a crazy thought that you can, when you think you can keep putting money into it, because I wasn't going out on tour and detoxing. I just would try to keep it going for as long as I could. You know what I mean? I lived in a very low income place. I, I would spend all my money on drugs. Um, and then I would use just detoxes to detox. I would use the public detoxes to detox. Wow. Um, when did you, um, when did it become a thing where you're just like, I don't want to do this. Like, when did it start becoming a thing where it's like, this is enough. Like, and what did that look like? I had a couple of friends, like, like everybody had gotten sober around me in Hollywood. Like there was Bob Forrest, he had gotten sober and Anthony, they had come over to my house and we were, you know, I lived in Silver Lake and was just smoking it. I thought I was doing great cause I was just smoking the shit. But, um, hold on uh, before you say, hold on before you say another word, explain that logic to me. Like how you could shoot heroin and you could say, I'm only going to smoke it because you're wasting so much money and you're not getting high. How did that even, do you remember the logic? Well, I was married to somebody who had a good job, right? And I was lying anyways. I was still shooting, but I was smoking it, you know, thinking that, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good because most of the time I'm smoking it, you know? Okay. I just want to make sure. So, um, are you wasting it when you smoke it though? Yes. You're wasting it because you're not... First of all, it, it, it the smoke See, goes all over the place. No, no, the and smoke then, doesn't go all over the place. Not if you're a fucking expert. I was terrible at smoking. Oh my god, you're kidding me! You wasted so much. No, I wasn't. Well, like I that. smoked it. I smoked it one time at Venice Beach. I, I was visiting my friend Todd, and I was smoking it because he wanted to smoke it. And I was, was like, he just like fucking? What are you doing? Well, he was like, this is chasing the dragon. <laughs> we were like, <laughs> we thought we were being cool, you know? And then I was like, this is not the way to do it. No, you know, shoot it. I have a guy, right? I'm friends with this guy who, uh, he's been clean for a long time. Right. And he just relapsed on meth. Okay. And his relapse was, he didn't smoke the meth. He didn't snort the meth. He didn't shoot the meth. He would, uh, turkey based it up his ass because he didn't want to waste it. Because if you turkey based it up your ass, it bypasses some sort of place where you lose some and it goes right into your system. Have you ever heard anything like that? We used to do it with cocaine. The turkey basting. No, not the turkey baster thing. Sometimes cocaine would get wet after you kept it for a long time. So we'd roll it up into balls and stick it up our ass. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, that was his relapse. So anyway, so so you have Anthony Kiedis and Bob showing being sober. Yes. Uh, so there's yeah, and there and and um, I started going out with um, this girl who's in a band called L Seven, and um, I've heard of them. Susie, and she was sober. She's very responsible for me getting sober, and somehow she saw that maybe she could help me. But we were together, you know, we were living together. And she um, had just about had enough because, you know, I was still in my using. And every time she went out on tour, um, it would get worse. You know, I would stay home and get it would get worse. And um, 
she couldn't, you know, I, it was, it, there were a couple of people, there was Gaza X, there was Susie, Susie G and, um, and, uh, they pretty much said, look, you know, we're going to, we're going to cut our ties with you if you don't try this to get sober, you know? So I said, you know, as a last ditch effort, um, I said, yeah, okay, I'll try it. And it was on Christmas and we were supposed to, uh, go to, uh, Susie's mom's house up in Sacramento and I, and I took the, the, stole the Cadillac and I went downtown and I shot up for the last time. And, uh, on Christmas day, uh, was my first day sober up in Sacramento. Amazing. We went on that trip. So when you drive downtown to, to score the last time in their stolen Cadillac and you come back, did you shoot up when you got back or did you shoot up when, as soon as I you shot scored? up downtown, I had 88 cents and I put it. <laughs> extra like change that I had, I had my money to cop and then I had 88 cents. I wasn't going to put any of that in the tank. So I put the 88 cents in the Cadillac, which gets you down there, maybe back if there was a little extra. So I figured, well, you know, I better shoot up downtown because I might not make it back. And of course I didn't make it back and I had to call somebody and they came with gas and you know, I was already high. It didn't matter. Were they pissed? Yeah, she was pissed. Anyways, so 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 that was my first day. My first day sober was Christmas Day, and uh, it, it was it was kind of it was kind of strange that it happened on Christmas Day. To tell you the truth, how did you hold on to it? Like, what made you want to hold on to it? You know, I don't I don't know. I'd quit so many times, Dave, and I was just so beat up. And to tell you the truth, the last time when I'd kind of just given up altogether, it wasn't that bad. Have you heard that before? Has that happened? I think it happens because the, the, the impulse to use, the impulse to run out isn't running you. And you're like, you're living with yourself. You're living with your decision. Whereas when you're going to relapse, you're going to relapse. So it plants all these kinds of suggestions into your brain. I think that's what it's like. I mean, I've been to treatment where I didn't, I, like my last time getting off of heroin wasn't that bad. And I expected it to be really bad because I had had the worst habit I had ever had. And I didn't want to use again. And I lived with it and it wasn't that bad. And it kind of reminds me of what you're saying. Yeah, it, it was like that, man. So, so I, I, I got, so in other words, I detoxed for five days. I picked up the 24 hour book, you know, on January 1st, right? New Year's Day five days I was doing okay and I thought you know I'm gonna, I'm gonna start trying to do this because people are giving up on me was that the thing was that why you decided to try to do it because you were like everybody's written me off the thing that I read in the 24 hour book the italics where they asked the little question and it said should I ever forget the condition I was in 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 Italian, have you ever seen that? Probably, but I don't recall it. Tell me, man. When I read that, I was just like, I was. It was like I was struck with lightning. I never wanted to forget the condition I was in because I was feeling pretty good. But you know, for five the five days leading up to the January first, I was not doing good, and I, and my whole life had fallen apart basically. What what? Did the, tell me how bad it got, and and did you detox at, at the at the L seven lady's house? Yes, I did, and um. Uh, how bad it had gotten was I had gotten into crack with Robin Crosby and, and all these, uh, and Bob was smoking crack. Everybody was smoking crack. It was a big crack epidemic in Los Angeles. You know, you could walk down, you could walk down to this one street called Burns and just, you know, pick up crack for five bucks. 
and uh, you could go downtown and they'd give you crack with your with your with your uh, heroin. You know, they'd always, you know, they figure they could get you started on it, then they could charge you for it later. It's a good business, but that that shit was really, you know, that's really like if I I always think that if I hadn't have started smoking the crack, I probably could still be using heroin today. You know, just a little bit a day. You think so? Or are you joking? <laughs> well, no, no, I'm joking. I think <laughs> okay. for a second I was like, what? Um, "No, I mean, I think uh, I think crack escalates a lot of people's habits like like crazy." I I just couldn't handle coke. It just it just amplified my neuroses too much. I just I just wanted the peace. Like I was not. Like I did coke if it was around, I did meth if it was around, but I didn't like it. I would just do it because I kind of was compulsive to do anything I had. Yeah, I would I would spend as little money as coke as I possibly could. That was my thing. At the end, though, for you, when when the first days of recovery are, are, are settling in, and you read that line, and I love the way that happens. I mean, you were very lucky that you read that line in the book, and it fucking resonated. That doesn't happen for everybody. You know, like, it's like, a, it's like, it's, I love that, you know, and, and little things resonated for me too. Like when I finally got, well, when I heard them say, rarely have we seen someone uh, follow this path and, and not succeed. I was like, well, I never tried to do anything. So I'm going to really try to thoroughly do everything because I, I mean, like you got clean. How old were you when you got clean? Well, it's 28 years ago. It was um, 91 Christmas day in 91. How old were you? Um, 62. You're 62 now. You yeah. were 29. Bob's turning 60 here coming up. You were what? What does that make you? They make fun of me with this math all the time. 62 minus three. You were 31. So you were, you were 10 years. I, I got clean at 41. Um, so 31, I mean, like, that's pretty amazing. And and there was a nice recovery scene around, right? <laughs> that's how bad it was, Dave. By the time I was 31, it was, like, pretty evident that, <laughs> that it was not working. <laughs> right, right. I, I get it. I mean, I, I just, it go, I mean, for me, it went on further. What do you think, man? 31, that's like, okay, so, so I started using when I was 10. I mean, that's a fucking, that's a long time, you know, that's a long time using. Now I'm actually past my point where i started using and uh you know well do you ever look like like we're sitting here and you're you're going over these stories and obviously you go over this kind of stuff now and again on don't die and um isn't it so funny the life we have now versus the life that we're talking about i struggle sometimes with like what if my kids you know this like the internet is forever right Mm -hmm. my kids are going to hear this at some point after I'm gone, <laughs> they're going to hear some shit, some crappy ass stories about me shooting dope and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know. Is, is it, is it right? Is it, I guess it has to be right. It's not particularly, I, I don't think it's right or wrong. I mean, my older daughter wants to be on dopey all the time. Like she, she sees like the fans send her stuff. Like people send us stuff like cool dopey shit. And she, she loves the, the joyful aspect of dopey. She knows that I destroyed my life and she knows that I got better to be a better father. And I, and I love being a good father. And I know you love being a good father. I know you love spending time with your kids. It's like, we do this. I mean, I like telling stories. I don't really want my kids to listen to this and I'm hoping that they never listen to this. How's oh, they that? will. Yeah, they will at some point. The internet when, is forever, Dave. So I guess the honesty, you know, that AA has brought and put in our lap has to be embraced. Do you understand what I mean? 
Keep it going. It has to be embraced. How so? Just, just to honor your sort of... Your story. Your parenthood, I guess. Is that right? I think... I know that my kids, my, my older, my, my younger daughters too. So she doesn't really know anything. My older daughter knows me very well. And I don't think her hearing these stories will really change her opinion of me. I don't think. Right. They're just things we did. It's not who we are. Um, when you, when you got into sobriety, because you're still active in the program, right? Yeah. Do you have you been doing meetings with the Zoom and stuff or no? I don't like the Zoom meetings. I do them every once in a while, but I I, I get distracted. I'm at home. You know, if I don't have to suit up and show up, I don't suit up and show up. You know what I'm talking about? We do meetings on the beach sometimes, you know, in person. I went to a meeting on the beach this morning. It's fucking yeah. 20 degrees. Not like Oh, yeah, it's cold there. It's cold there right it's now, right? It's very, very yeah. cold. Um, it says it's like 10 degrees. Yeah, tomorrow it's going to be like negative 10 with the wind chill. It's going to be crazy. Um, But like, how important was the early, like in your early recovery, like the scene, the recovery scene around you? Like, were you into it? Oh, I was. And Bob talks about that a lot. You know, Bob talks about the early scene and how it was, it was, it was, um, it was welcoming. You could come in and say, you know, hello, I'm Mike. I'm an alcoholic. But man, I tell you, I sure took a lot of drugs and nobody, everybody would just laugh. I go to a meeting and I live in one of the most Republican counties in new york and uh it's a bunch of like you know pretty much like fuckos like firemen cops whatever uh contractors this and that and the other thing but they don't give a shit if i talk about they don't care about anything besides the message like they're like a good bunch of people nobody's ever like they're the most like whacked out fucko republican types in the world but when they get to the meeting it's like they don't talk about outside issues they just talk about the meeting. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's I know. Good. It is I like great. It, yeah. yeah, I Outside like it too. Issue. I get yeah. a kick out of it. Um, what was I going to say? Did I ever tell you the story about um, when I fell out of the back of a truck drinking a bottle of wine? No, tell us the story. So we're all in there, a whole bunch of us, right? And we're zipping around town, and I got this big half gallon jug of wine. I got a leather jacket on, you know. I'm pretty tough. And I take this big swig of wine, if you can imagine a guy sitting on the side of the truck, you know, and he takes this big swig of wine and the truck turns a corner and he falls out of the truck, right? That's me, right? Fall out of the truck. We're probably going 40 miles an hour. Oh, my God. I roll. Somehow I land on my back. I roll about three or four times. I pop up and I got this bottle of wine in my hand. It's not broken. And I'm just on my feet. And I'm like, that story right there, right there surmises my drug use in a nutshell. Right, right. That's exactly what happened to me. I also just love the way the scene out there was kind of like the dopey nation, but in person. You were part of a community that gave a shit about you that you like to be a part of. You know, that's fucking awesome. I love that. And, um, you know, I, I can't tell you, like, how much I appreciate your friendship, your guidance, your support, your love of, 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 what I do and what we do with Dopey and like, you know, it means a lot to me. I'm glad that you came on. Uh, I'm glad that you told the shooting acid story in DopeyCon too. It was a legendary moment. And, um, you know, I appreciate your time, man. And, and tell the Dopey Nation how much you love the fifth year anniversary. I didn't get to, I didn't get Oh my God. It was hilarious, man. It was good. You and Linda were really great, man. 
Some people are um, writing me. She, people are writing me that I give her like that she deserves better than a garbage can and a robot vacuum cleaner. They're like, you, you're, you she deserves better gifts. People are writing me that. <laughs> <laughs> she got better. Dopey Nation. Just so you know, she got better gifts. That's just the funny stuff. She got That's better great, gifts. man. It was um, a really good episode. I enjoyed it a lot. Well, I am so glad you came through. And the best thing about this to me is that Mike is a professional engineer, producer, and editor. <laughs> and rather than me having to deal with all this stuff, I'm sending the material to Mike, who will cut it and make it beautiful. And ah, I can't wait. I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Mike. That was awesome. Did you have fun? I did, man. So that was Mike Mart. Wasn't that amazing? I like Mike. He's great. Why do you like him? He's got a lot of recovery. Um, I just, you know, I like, uh, I, I relate to where he's from, uh, you know, how how he grew up, that kind of, you know, I well, I, I relate to what you talked about, like the music and like, you know, reading like, dopey novels and you know I, mike didn't relate as much to that stuff but i really i really identified with that i think he doesn't want to admit it but the thing about mike is he's in it he's lived that life he was like you know he's so in that scene and in that world and such a, a character that he doesn't like to see himself as a character because it was just his existence you know what i mean but uh yeah. He's a great, great guy, and a, he's a, new, a nice. He's like a new friend, which is awesome. Like it's it's weird to to make new friends when you get older. But Mike has been a, a great uh, friend and help and supporter of Dopey, so I'm happy he came on. I hope on. I run across him in a meeting sometime here in LA. He's like at the beach someplace. I'm not exactly sure where he's at, but I don't think yeah. he's in LA proper. I think he's like I picture him in Long Beach, but I know he's not in Long Beach. I mean, and I, you know, I, I loved, uh, I didn't know that, you know, his, his girlfriend had been in L7. I mean, how would I know that? But I was an L7 fan in high school and, uh, I sent you that picture of me uh, at Myrtle beach on spring break with all of my good girl softball high school friends. It looks like the, I, the, the, it looks like the ultimate lesbian field trip. It's like six softball players in Aurora wearing an L7 shirt of one girl sniffing another girl's pussy and it says smell the magic. It's like yes. Aurora looks like the fucking cover of Siamese Dream in that picture. Yes, what a compliment. So, high, so senior year of high school, we wanted to go to Myrtle Beach. Nobody's parents wanted to let us go. And it conflicted, like, with our softball practice. And, th- and they said, like, you guys can't go away for spring break. Wait, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You were on the softball team? Until I quit. I, I, like, I, like, led this whole, like, planning of this trip. Convinced everyone's parents. We all quit the softball team, I think, together. My, fr- my friends have better memories than I have, so they could probably tell it better than me. But anyway, we convinced our parents and my grandparents that we could take a bus, a Greyhound, to Myrtle Beach. In, in the, at, on the trip, I had a little cooler with me with a quarter of bud and 10 hits of acid. And we went to Myrtle Beach and, like, you know, drank and tried to party and meet boys. And I forced those girls to take acid. Uh, two of them, three of them didn't really want to. But I made them 
and we all tripped out on the beach. And then there I was with my L7 t-shirt, like trying to be like alternative girl. It was, it was, it was wild. And then on the way back, we had a fucking horrible trip back. Just like the Greyhound was full. We had to sit on the steps of it. It was like crazy. It was crazy. I, I can't believe we convinced our parents to let us do that unaccompanied as minors. The, it's, it's, it would never happen today. The question is, though, do you remember how you forced them to take the acid? Like, what did you say to them that made them have to take it? I think I just was like, you have to do this. It's going to change your life. You're going to love it. It's going to be so much fun. You're going to just like, your, your mind is going to explode when you when you realize, you know, oh, the big truth, right? Or like, I don't know. I just like, I think I just put the pressure on hard for them to, to take it and trip out. Do you have any recollections of the trip or no? Uh, a little bit. We stayed together for the most part, and then and then somehow we got separated. I think went to the beach. I, I, I they would probably remember more than me. What I'm amazed about is like the way this show. Like I didn't, you know. Sometimes I'm great at planning shows, and sometimes I'm not great at planning shows. And this time, you know, it became you know you and Mike Mart. But that story about your mother at the methadone clinic. This L7 acid connection, and now the voicemail I'm going to play, it really creates this incredible synergy. So are you ready? This is a voicemail from a hardcore dopey fan from, uh, I think he's from England. His name is Patrick. Uh, You ready to listen? Yes. What's up, Dave? What's up, Dopey Nation? It's Patrick here from London. Um, I've got an international dopey story for you guys here. Um, takes place in Italy mostly. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was around two years ago. I was addicted to heroin and um, I didn't really want to stop. But I had this holiday coming up with my family that had been booked for a long time. And I didn't really know how I was going to be able to go on it. And I had a friend who was saying trying to get me to like give it a go at least to kick and I thought why not I'm gonna try and kick on this holiday so I packed my bags um, and I had a bunch of pregabalin valium and subutex that I got off the dark web and um, the plan was to get in a kind of haze with those and uh, then take the subutex when the time was right and and uh, wean off Obviously, um, that all started great, you know, uh, I felt all right, and I eventually took the Subutex when it was enough time since I'd last used, um, but I started snorting the subs, and generally, after about two days, I think I was pretty much out of meds, um, and I felt the withdrawals come on, and I just knew that I couldn't do it, there was no way, like, with my family there, they didn't know what was going on with me at all, um, there was no way I could hide withdrawal from them like that so I had to come up with another plan not that this plan worked in the slightest really but um I decided I was going to go to the nearest city and try and score there and um so off I went to Florence I told my parents you know I'm going to go on a lovely cultural expedition and see some galleries see some churches they thought that was a great idea uh, but I beelined for the methadone clinic instead, and um, I waited outside these grand oak doors. And um, you know, before you know, I'd only been there half an hour, and a guy marched out in camo gear, sweating profusely, looking very disgruntled and covered in marks. Um, he looked like my guy, so I flagged him down. 
And I started saying Rogba Rogba to him, and, and that means heron in Italian. I just looked that up. Um, and he didn't speak a word of English, but he got the gist pretty quickly. And he pulled out a little wrapped up piece of napkin. And um, he insisted that that was it and that he'd give, me, give it to me for 50 euros. Now, that felt pretty steep because I didn't think much was in there. So I thought, fuck it, I'm going to get this. But seeing as I'm on a lucky roll, I'm going to go and try and, def- try and find a better deal. Um, so I chase him down a bit and I'm trying to get him to, to take me to his dealer or whatever, but it's just not happening. So we split and I go to the toilet and I do the heroin and it is powerful. It's really strong. Um, and it is definitely heroin and it sorts me right out and I'm feeling really good. So, um, when I'm high on heroin, I want one thing and that's crack. Um, so that was my next stop. Um, and I... Uh, so I went to a park where I'd seen that um, on the internet people were saying you could score drugs there and I was asking around and before I know it um, there's some guys smoking spliffs and they say yeah of course and once again it was effortless like um, two guys carrying a TV like sort of swapped hands with another guy and I swapped and I gave them 100 euros and before I knew it I had a ball of um, you know a gram of cocaine and, and pretty good stuff. Then I had a mad idea. Well, do you guys have any heroin? Um, and the same thing happened. You know, they whistled. Another guy came along. And, and before I knew it, I had a ball of this brown stuff. Now, that brown stuff turned out, I don't know what the fuck that was. That was not heroin. I did, it, it was like smoking putty or something. Um, but I only found that out later. So I thought I had all my gear and I was ready to go. Um, so then I began a frantic race of trying to find the appropriate things to cook up some crack. All, all the Meanwhile, sort of going in and out of toilets. Um, so I, you know, I went to a place. I got some bicarbonate of soda. Then I went to a homeware and got homeware store and got a spoon and some steel wool. And and I couldn't find a pipe. So I was I bought some pipe nozzles that you pipe icing onto a cake with. Um, complete madness. Um, and I was going in and out of uh, you know these lovely trattoria bathrooms, restaurant bathrooms. Uh, to um, with my little spoon to cook up some um, homemade free base and smoke it out of this uh, homemade device, just like absolutely filling this toilet with smoke and staying in there for 20 minutes and all these confused tourists looking at me as I kind of went out of this billowing like crack den of a toilet. Um, and yeah, you know, and then I actually did find a shop that was selling a pipe, so I was using that. And, you know, I didn't see... a any bit of culture i was just in and out of the bathroom smoking crack and doing more of this heroin and it was um equal parts debaucherous and equal parts sad really um and uh when the time came to say goodbye um to the city off i went back home and it only took me about a day to finish the the good shit and um you know that other stuff didn't do anything so i had two or three miserable days um in withdrawal and um i just told my parents i was three i had a stomach bug and you know obviously i did not stay sober when i got home i went straight to the man um but yeah that's my uh, dopey story for you guys um i hope you enjoyed it uh, peace out um and toodles for chris all right bye guys so that was patrick from london patrick is a great dopey fan he's been around for a long time and uh i think he's got some recovery together now you know what it made me think of you know it made me think of i think the first time i did coke was with you and todd at my parents house in the uh in the stairwell 
I think you hung out with Todd like twice, and the first time you ever hung out with him was at my parents' house, and and he was like, I can get Coke, and you were like, ooh, Coke. You were like all worldly. And we went and we snorted Coke in the stairwell at my parents' house in probably like 1996 or something. Is that possible? No, I didn't meet you till. Oh, well, maybe, yeah, actually. You met me in 94. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Um, anyway, did you ever smoke any Coke? You did? Yeah. What was yeah, your method was of... Just on the cigarettes? Okay. How would you smoke Coke? Yeah, and the end of cigarettes and blunts. I think maybe in bowls, too. Did you ever call it a wooly? Love to smoke Coke. <laughs> but you never smoked Coke. You never smoked crack. You never freebased Coke. You would just smoke yeah. it like, like you, because you were probably, were you scared of smoking crack and scared of smoking yes. Coke? But, yes. But not scared of but, putting it into the cigarette? like, you know, put like you know, a shitload in it in a blunt or put a ton of it on cigarette after cigarette, like a, a lot, you know, more than you're supposed to because I loved it. But, but yeah, didn't want to like be free basing because that would be bad. <laughs> you know, like, How yeah. much would you connect your parents' addictions with your own addiction when you were using? Yeah, so doing anything like that, like smoking Coke, was like, ooh, this is a little close to home. Careful here, you know, or taking a lot of pills. Like when I would take, you know, a lot of Percocets or Oxycontins or whatever, Vicodins, like taking a lot of pills. I'd be like, ooh, got to be careful, you know. Right, You can right. only take so many. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's like... I mean, like, Coke was never... I, I, I talk about how Coke was never a thing all the time on the show, but it really, like, it never hit me the way it hit other people. It just it just didn't. It just, like, I don't know. Even thinking about it, like... I mean, I remember when I had run out of, of dope and I would... And you weren't around, obviously, but I remember when I didn't have heroin and I had Coke and I would shoot the Coke because everybody would talk about shooting Coke. It never hit me in the way I liked it. And even when I would get... Be social... All I would want. No, your your thing is weed and heroin and pills and pills. But no, but alcohol has never been your thing. Cocaine, meth, those aren't your thing. No, they don't hit me right. Um, yeah. So I don't. Do you know how? Like, do you have any dopey stickers or no? Yeah, I have a few. Well, I'm obsessed with dopey stickers, and we made three new dopey stickers right now. Uh, there's one, we did a dopey sticker contest and this woman, Colleen Marie made this cool dopey sticker, which kind of looks like, uh, the full tarot card. So I made one of those and then I made a dopey nation sticker, which looks like an old Powell Peralta sticker that, uh, Butchie the cop made, which is really cool. And he also made a five year dopey anniversary sticker, which I love a tie dye one. So I made one of those and I, and I like, I make all the stickers with this company called Sticker Mule, right? And if you buy more than a hundred bucks of stickers, they send you a free bottle of hot sauce that they call Mule Sauce, okay? Nice. And I fucking nice. order stickers all the time. So, like, my house is like bursting at the seams with Mule Sauce. And I order these new stickers, and I'm like, I wrote her a note, and I was like, dude, can I get something besides Mule Sauce? Because I have more Mule Sauce than I could ever use. 
And, and then I realized I have a podcast with listeners. And I said, well, could I advertise you guys and get some free stickers? And she said, yeah. So I'm, I'm telling you now, use Sticker Mule. They make the nicest stickers. And they're about to give us some stickers. So you guys should get stickers at Sticker Mules. And you can get free mule sauce with over 100 bucks. What are you going to put the mule sauce on? Have I, you been I, using it? Honestly, I put mule sauce on everything. I'll put mule sauce sure. on an omelet. I'll put mule sauce on a little chicken, whatever. I have a new chicken thigh thing that I'm doing. It's gluttonous, though. Okay? What is it? Tell right. me. I'm taking the chicken thighs, and I'm cutting them into little, little nugget-sized pieces, right? Right, right? Okay, so they're boneless, skinless. Boneless, thinless, skinless chicken thighs. I cut them up. I make them little kind of pieces, like about four inches long or whatever, nuggets. Mm -hmm. And then I season them with salt, garlic, pepper, both sides. Then I take about a tablespoon and a half of olive oil, put it on the fucking the skillet, the pan, make it as hot as I can, right? Then I throw the chicken thighs in so they're really cooking hard. Um, and I leave them on there for... As, so they can get really seared, right? And then I take a couple tablespoons of butter, throw that shit in the pan. Then I flip the chicken thighs over so they're cooking in the oil and the butter. And then I take a teaspoon of chicken stock, throw that in the butter. Bam! Fucking salty, chickeny. Then push that around, add some... Oh, I also... First, I forgot. First thing I do is I... I, I mince up the garlic, and I have the garlic in the olive oil. So when I throw in the super hot, the, the chicken thighs on the super hot pan, there's already garlic browning in the oil. Then I take chicken stock, pour that in, so it creates this gravy of butter and chicken stock, and everybody nice. loves it. The whole family loves it. So two weeks ago, I made a buttermilk brine chicken. You just take salt and buttermilk and you soak the chicken for like a 24 hours and then i roasted the whole chicken it was fucking delicious and i made chicken stock for the first time with the carcass and the gizzards and then i made chicken soup and it was like a revelation it was fucking delicious i made my so first then, good my first good chicken soup but i fucking did it with the bones and then i have to fucking pick the bones out and i fucking uh anyway continue so then I read in the comments on, you know, the chicken stock recipe that I was using that chicken feet make the best stock. So I'm like all fucking inspired to be making chicken stock now because of how great it was the first. It's the first and only time I did it. So I get a bunch of chicken feet and fucking you have to cut the toenails off, which I was it was so disgusting. I made Jeff do it. I couldn't do it. Do you use a so toenail Jeff, clipper? To get it off. All the talons off. They looked like, oh, not your nightmare. So then I made chicken stock with chicken feet. So I go from making it one time to like, oh, yeah, now I got to make it like with the feet. It was so sick. Do you take the bones stock. out or no? No. I mean, I, after I was, after I made the stock, I like strained the stock into like, I strain everything out of the stock the onions, the carrots, the chicken bones. Now, that was my mistake is I didn't strain. So it was, yes, it was swampy. Yeah. But my mom, yeah. so, but when my mom would make chicken soup or my dad or my grandma, there's carrots and celery in the soup. Yeah, well, the stock is, I mean, I, I took the chicken off the bone, strained 
you know, after I roasted it, took some of the chicken off the bone and then made the stock with the carcass. And then you strain that stock. Then you put the stock in a pot. I added leeks and some other carrots and onion and the chicken off the bone into it. That's how you do it. You got to add it back after. Do you think this is some fucking newfangled cooking show? Because it's not. It's dopey. You know what? We haven't even we haven't even talked about. Um, I've been doing roasting pork. I made bosom. I'm roasting beef, making chuck roast. You know what goes good with that stuff? Is mule sauce. Yeah, fuck yeah. Um, You're making bread? Uh, I am, yes, I'm making like just simple kind of yeasted bread. I want to hear. And I haven't had sugar in, I think today's day 22. No way, really? Today's day 23. No sugar at all? I haven't had any chocolate, no desserts. And I had... I haven't, I've eaten fruit and some dates. I had a little bit of granola made with maple sugar, but I have not had any desserts, any sugar, 23 days. I'm going for 30. I'm out of control over here. No, I was out of control at Christmas, so I had to get off it. You know what I'm doing now? I'm taking animal crackers, and I'm icing them with vanilla frosting, and I'm eating sandwiches of animal crackers (laughs) with vanilla frosting. I do that and Nutella in between animal crackers. It's the latest thing. No, I'm going to try to make it till February 12th. I'm going to make a birthday cake for my boyfriend's father, and I'm going to try to make it till then until I eat. And they... Best donut shop in LA has opened down the street for us. We've been literally waiting for six months. It's spent it said coming soon for six months. We drive by, we're like, is it open yet? It's open. I'm like, fuck, I can't, I no. can't go there yet. I'm sure you'll get there eventually. It's funny, like you'll get there, but you won't get to the weed dispensary. Right? How many weed dispensaries do you drive past? Yeah, a million. Is it weird? Yeah. A little weird. It's like kind of like Oh, shit, man. What if, you know, if we'd been smoking now, it'd be much different just to live. I mean, we still got delivery all the time in New York where you could pick from a million different great buds. But, yeah, it would be different to go in and buy, like, oh, we could buy teeth, we could buy bud, we could buy edibles, we could buy, like... Shattered gummies. You know, I heard this fucked up story. You want to hear a fucked up story? Yes or no? Yeah. I have a a friend who has a teenage daughter, you know, and... um, she was with her friend or whatever, and they wanted to um, experiment with uh, THC, but they didn't have weed. They only had gummies, and uh, she ate a gummy or whatever, and, like, it didn't hit her, and she ate, like, 50 gummies. And she, oh. and she like, OD'd on THC and had to, like, go to the fucking mental, mental ward. You know what I mean? Like, so, like, imagine that. Like, it's, like, that's the problem with decriminalized... I mean, that's where it becomes really dangerous for children because you eat a gummy, it's not going to hit you for like 45 minutes or something. I always overshot the mark with edibles every fucking time. I feel like like I smoked so much weed that it didn't really matter how much weed I ate. Like, I never, like... It never really... Like, people tell me all these stories about eating this much weed or that much weed. I think I was just always smoking so much that it never really made a difference what I ate. Do you remember? I told you about, I told you about the time Levon Helm gave me weed cookies, right? No, tell the story. Oh, my God. We were, uh, I was filming a thing for Amnesty International at the barn up in Woodstock, and 
Levon was like the, I just, I met him once. He was just there kind of listening to some of the music and some of the stuff we were recording. And he was so fucking like his energy was incredible. So kind. And, you know, he was a big proponent of marijuana and, and I think, um, with his cancer too, he did a lot of edibles. So, you know, we, there was like a big, uh, final concert at the end of the night. And so after we had filmed that, um, I ended up getting a bottle of bullet rye whiskey and Levon had given me some weed cookies. So I ate, I think one cookie and I had known like from previous experience that I would overshoot the mark. So I would like set a timer on my phone for 45 minutes so I set the timer, the timer went off, and I wasn't feeling as fucked up as I wanted to. So I ate the other cookie. So by the time we got back to fucking Airbnb, like I had like the director, the producer, the, you know, the director of photography and me were sharing an Airbnb. And like the director was kind of this like big doc guy who I wanted to impress. I was so fucked up. I couldn't speak. I dropped the entire bottle of bullet rye whiskey outside of the um, entrance to the, to the house shattered fucking everywhere. Then I was like zombified. Like I could not even string a sentence together. I was so fucked up. And then uh, Natalie and I got in the hot tub that was cold. Like, uh, you know, we couldn't even get it up to temperature. We're just fucked. And needless to say, that guy never hired me again. <laughs> That's amazing, though. Like, Levon Helm was my all-time favorite, 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 favorite. Um, that's an amazing story. I love that. What was I going to say? Somebody, like, last year wrote on Dopey Reddit, they were like, you guys don't talk enough about weed addiction. You know, and, like, I feel like it's a weird fucking thing at this point because... There's more people in my world nowadays talking about weed recovery than weed addiction. Like, it's that's how crazy Bud is at this point. You have junkies and cokeheads and meth people saying they're in recovery smoking weed. And then you have potheads who are desperate to get off of it saying that they're not in recovery because uh, they can't stop smoking pot. Um, I know that I smoke pot addictively. You know, um, I don't, I was never physically addicted to pot, but I was, I was addicted to smoking weed. And, and, and when I stopped smoking weed, not smoking weed was, I mean, not smoke, not doing heroin, you get really sick, not taking pills, you get sick, you go into withdrawal, but not smoking butt is a whole crazy thing. Do you remember what it was like when you stopped smoking weed? Yeah. I mean, I would drink or I would take pills. Put the you know, phone close to your mouth. Make I me- would drink or take pills when I stopped smoking weed. I would try to like, you know, get the get the chemistry just right and in other ways. Um when you finally got sober, wasn't like the biggest leap not smoking pot? The biggest leap? Yeah, I mean it was all a leap, not not drinking socially, you know, right. not um you know, not sneaking. Like I used to love to come home on a Friday night and, you know, do get ready to go out drinking and meet friends and do a couple lines of Coke before I went and pump some music. And, you know, I used to love that too. Like any kind of ritual. What is your Um, take on weed addiction though? And and also like, I'm not saying that I don't support. I I remember when I had about, I think I had six months time, I was walking up second Avenue or, 
in Ninth Street, I think, and I smelled this dank bud, and I had been feeling so happy-go-lucky and kind of like on a pink cloud, and I smelled that bud, and it smelled so good, and I felt so good. I thought, I could fucking get high right now. And then I, I, I kind of realized that conning, baffling nature of, of addiction of like, oh, it's not only when you're feeling bad and you're feeling you know, hopeless and full of self-pity that you want to use. It's when you're feeling good, too. Right. And I I think, like, I don't want to, like, step on anybody's toes, and I support anybody's, like, journey into uh, recovery and, like, whatever anybody does that makes their life better, I totally support. I just know that, like, the way I smoke pot, like, when I smoke pot, I smoke pot every day, first of all. I mean, years ago, I would wake up in the morning and smoke pot. But when you and I were chilling a few years ago, it would I would just be religious that when I got home from Katz's, I would smoke bong hits, you know? And I would, I would probably smoke, you know, about five bong hits a night. I would go to bed wasted. And, and the thing was about weed for me was I won't say that weed... I mean, I, I loved pot. I loved eating on pot. I loved watching TV on pot. I loved smoking cigarettes on pot. I loved walking and talking on pot. It's just much less stuff could happen when I was using pot. The potential for me achieving things was way uh, inhibited. Like, it was, I just couldn't get enough stuff done, and I was stuck. I mean, I, and what a waste. Like, I just think... You know, yeah, I loved getting stoned. I got stoned every day for fucking 23 years. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Every day. And I didn't, you know, and I, and I would too. I wouldn't smoke in the morning when I got up. Otherwise I couldn't do shit all day. But like, you know, I would smoke the minute I got home from work and, you know, all night until I went to bed and didn't think that it really had any effect on me. I would race when I'd walk in the door, I'd race to take my pants off put pajamas on, pack the bong and just like, you know, but that was it. I remember when we were kids, when, when, like when we, when we knew each other and before, and I would live with Zev and Zev would pack a bong hit every morning and he'd, he'd show me the bong and he'd go ruin your day. And that would be the, that would be the beginning of every day. And every day I'd be like, okay. And I know Zev is still smoking now. God bless him. Zev's fucking eating mushrooms and shit. He doesn't give a fuck. I just found out a friend of mine with 13 years has started microdosing. I know a dude out in California with like 20 years. He's like tripping all over the place. Dude, I'm like, I'm like, okay, all right. So what do they say about it? I, I actually didn't speak to him about it. I spoke to his wife about it. Um, she's like, she's, she's like, I think I'm going to leave my husband because he's microdosing. No, she's been microdosing with him. I mean, he's always, you know, 13 years, terrible, like terrible drunk. Um, thinks like I can never touch alcohol, but has always loved psychedelics. Said if he ever wanted, you know, if there's one thing he really missed and wanted to do, it was mushrooms. And so, you know, I think that he's treating it as like psychologically that it, it it's really helpful for his anxiety to be microdosing, but I don't think it's been prescribed by a doctor. Linda wanted to go to fucking like uh whatever, Costa Rica and take ayahuasca. No. With me. No. Definitely not. She'll bug out. I have a I have a old curmudgeon in my in my home group who's like, ayahuasca is for Native American people. <laughs> like, right. like white people have no business taking ayahuasca for a spiritual journey. Like, so like, could I could I microdose instead? 
possibly. So you no. think microdosing is okay, but ayahuasca is not? No, okay. I don't think microdosing is okay. What about just a bong hit after work? What about a bong hit just before bed? I mean, that's the thing. I got, you know, alcoholism, it's a self-diagnosed disease, right? And, you know, I mean, it's none of my business to say to somebody, hey, that's not sober or like, you know. You know what I think is interesting when uh, people at meetings talk about, I don't know, like there's a phrase about dying sober. You know what I mean? Like that they talk about their friend who got to die sober and, and, you know, what what a great thing. And like that doesn't really resonate with me. The dying sober. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't. Like, whenever I think about dying, you know, the first thing I think about is not bong hits. It's like a pack of cigarettes. It's like, if I'm dying, give me a pack of cigarettes. And then it's like, and give me bong hits and let me get, eat a peach by the Almond Brothers on vinyl. And I'll smoke, I'll smoke Marlboro Reds and take bong hits before I die. Like, that's like my, my weird stoner fantasy. I don't know. I think. Oh, I forgot. I forgot to tell you that that part of, um, you know, I like when you were talking to Mike about the axis of love, and it made me think about the moment I walked into this like party with Jenny, our friend, when I was about seventeen years old, and I heard Jimi Hendrix for the first time, and it like fucking stopped me in my tracks. When I was on that Myrtle Beach acid trip with my friend. Uh, on that trip, I we were we'd met these boys at the beach, and we were in their car, and I heard Led Zeppelin for the first time, and it was another one of those moments where it was like, you know, totally transformative. It was like time stopped. I was like, what is this music? Right, right, right. I think it's funny. Like, I feel guilty whenever I talk about anything that isn't a hundred percent recovery oriented on dopey, and um, and I shouldn't. You know what I mean? Like. Every, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I, we're allowed to think about whatever we want. Um, and Led Zeppelin on acid or on weed the first time is incredible. And I bet you, like, I mean... I think I was so, sober. I mean, I was, you know, I think I was sober when I actually heard them in the car. I think, you know what I'm getting into now, which is really annoying, is I'm watching uh, reaction videos on YouTube. Do you watch those? No. It's like they play like Led Zeppelin for some oh, kid who's cool. never heard it before. Oh, cool. Have you watched that? I watched the one the one that went viral with the kids listening to um, Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. And it's like I want to do reaction videos where I watch stuff and then not like it. <laughs> you know, I'm like, that sucks. I don't think that's very good. He's an idiot. I think that would be funny, like kind of like curmudgeon reaction video that's a fucking funny idea you get old men to watch hip-hop videos and have them react to it like that they've never seen like oh, like protect your neck wu-tang clan video you have the young kid you show them Jimi hendrix and they freak out and you get like you go to the senior you go to the senior uh whatever nursing home and you show a grandfather like wu-tang clan mm-hmm. videos or fucking uh snoop dog videos and watch them react to that it. that'd be fucking hysterical I think that would be good. I think I should do that. Oh, my God. What do you think about that? You think that would work? I think you should do it. I think we should do a skit. Fuck a skit. I'm saying, really, go to the nursing home and be like, we want to do a reaction video for Snoop Dogg or something. I think you should do it after everybody gets vaccinated. Yes. All right. Well, Aurora, as always, it was a pleasure having you on The Dopey Show. Was it, was it the best time of your life? Dave, it's been a it's been a wild ninety minutes here with you. As always, it's you know it's what I come to expect. I mean, you know, 
harassed, uh, called, texted, threatened, cajoled, uh, cajoled, fucked up, fucked up the recording three times. I mean, three times I fucked up the recording three times and I bet you this didn't work either. Now the question is this. I, Dang, you're gonna call. You're gonna call me in two hours and be like, "It's fucked up." Oh my god, can you record right now? We gotta do it again. Um, yeah, right. Um, listen, your father is a crazy, out of control, dry alcoholic and drug addict. Can you tell one story of dealing with your father before we go? I, I know they're sad and fucked up stories, but for some reason, I think they're funny. So tell tell the greatest your father giving you shit story of the past six months. Well, two two weeks ago, I was on the phone with my dad saying, like, look, you're being abusive. I don't like how you're acting. Like, you're acting crazy. What's going on with you? And he told me, like, I'm going to fucking cut you out of my life and never talk to you again. You're a fucking bitch. And he hung up on me. And then a week later. Yeah, it's not as, back, it's not as funny as, as I remembered it. A week later, he called me back. He got an iPad with this with his stimulus. Third time he's bought an iPad. Every other time he returns it because he is technologically like he can't hang with with the iPad. And so he's got an iPad. He needs my help. He wants me and my boyfriend to help him like get set up with, you know, email, FaceTime. He wants Twitter. He wants Parler. He wants all these, you know, right wing apps, communication apps that we refuse to help him with. But um you know, he FaceTimes me. It's like I can only see his chin. He's, like, wearing his camo robe, and, like, I can see his nipples. Like, I'm just like, Dad, okay, we got to lay some fucking ground rules here. Like, you got to be <laughs> dressed when you call me. Tell, you know. t- tell the story about when he thought he was going to die and where he had hidden the money for you. I mean, that happens every time I go to see him. He shows me, you know, he's got, oh, 1,200 cash duct taped underneath the sink and the drawer with the pots and pans. He's got some old fucking corduroy jacket that's hanging in the closet that has $300 cash in the pocket. And then like a credit card that, that has his name misspelled slightly that like I can get a couple hundred off of and a social security card, you know, it's insanity. He wants me to put a, a, a different name on his headstone than his real name. What name does he want to put on the headstone? Well, he wants to, you know, he hates his, his last name. He wants me to put his mother's maiden name, his son, what he feels like is his true name on his headstone. Wow. Well, there you go. Amazing. Yeah. Aurora, thank you so much for coming through. It's a joy. And uh, why don't you take us out at the end of this thing? All right, Dave. Thanks for ha- having me. I love you. Good, good chat. Good to chat. Good to hear Mike. Um, and you know, this is helping. This is helping my recovery. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm in the wilderness. I feel like I'm, I'm coming back, baby. And uh, thanks, Dopey Nation. Stay strong. And minaste toodles for Chris. Wow, she said it all. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Thank you, Aurora, and fucking toodles for Chris.
Alright, man. Thank you very much.